Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show well we had another roller coaster ride in the stock market today with the Dow Jones ending down about 200 points but that was well off the lows of the day I think we were down about 350 points or close to it at the lows but more interesting we were up over 200 points earlier this morning so this is very negative technical action when you have these rallies and then close negative in fact we were down another 100 points yesterday on the Dow and today we came to within I think 10 points of taking out yesterday's high and then we not only crashed below yesterday's low but we closed below yesterday's low so another very very weak day I think one of the catalysts for the late afternoon rally before the sell-off was all of the headlines coming out of Europe, the UK, regarding a Brexit deal. And I think that caused some people to buy the stocks. Dollar actually sold off. It was down already and it sold off some more on that news coming out of Europe. But I don't know if this deal is going to fly. We'll see. You know, I read through some parts of the deal. And to me, it looks like Theresa May is trying to borrow a page from President Donald Trump. Basically, what she's doing is she's trying to rename the union that the UK has with Europe. I mean, if you read what they're going to sign on to, it's going to be some kind of trade pact that really kind of subjects the UK to all the rules and regulations that prompted them to want to get out of the European Union in the first place. So they're going to Brexit, but they're not actually going anywhere. It's kind of like renaming NAFTA the USMCA. 
basically you're rebranding what you had before and claiming a victory. I mean, maybe politically speaking, May wants to try to honor the will of the voters by saying we accomplished Brexit, but basically not change anything. It's just a change in name only, just like the rebranding of NAFTA. So we'll see if the British actually fall for it the way the Americans did. But either way, I don't think that this is enough. Even if we got some kind of deal on Brexit, that is not going to stop the U.S. bear market from continuing uh, because we're not going down because of the problems in Europe. In fact, if anything, the problems in Europe are helping to prop up the U.S. stock market because it's scaring investors out of Europe and out of the euro and into the U.S. kind of by default. So as far as I'm concerned, anything that kind of potentially solves some problems in Europe, makes Europe a less risky place to invest, is actually going to hurt the United States because it's going to accelerate the capital flows out of U.S. assets into foreign assets. In fact, you know, look at some of the big stocks that are selling off. Apple down again today, down 2.7% on the day, but now Apple is finally in a bear market. It's now down better than 20% from the highs. So what's the odds that now that Apple is in a bear market, that the rest of the market isn't going to follow now that you got you know half the fangs in a bear market and now you have Apple, which sometimes is an honorary fang you know because it begins with an A, but it's not technically one of those fangs, but sometimes people try to say there's two A's and they shove Apple in there. Uh, but now it's in a bear market. Look at the financials. Goldman Sachs. Right? And I forgot to mention this on Monday's podcast when it was down 6% in one day. Well, it has continued to fall. It was only down about one and a quarter percent today, well off its lows. It bounced again on this uh, Brexit news. But Goldman Sachs is now down about 27% from its high. So it is officially in a bear market. I remember one of these shows I was on on Fox, uh, Fox News back in the day on those Saturday shows. In fact, this was even part of the Peter Schiff was right uh, video. But I remember she told me that she was buying Goldman Sachs because it was like getting Dolce Gabbana on sale. Right, because it's you know the creme de la creme of the financials, and of course we know what happened to the financials after uh, that program. Right, they all imploded. Well, if Goldman Sachs is really you know Dolce Gabbana, it's the it's the best financial out there, and if it's in a bear market. What are the odds that the rest of the sector isn't going to follow the lead of Goldman Sachs? I would say pretty slim. So clearly the financials are going to be in a bear market. They're going to join other sectors that are already in a bear market, like housing, which is probably in the worst bear market ever, or maybe since 2007, 2008, the autos in a major bear market. The retailers are all going to be in a bear market relatively soon. Some of them, of course, already are. They're just blown up left and right. But if these key sectors are going into bear markets, like the financials, then what is the odds that the entire market doesn't go into a bear market? I mean, this is a case of absolute and complete denial. I have never seen anything like this. This is so much worse than... The, the blindness in 2007, 2008, because here you have the, you know, the warning signs are so much brighter and people should at least have the memory of 2008. They have the memory of 2000. 
yet they still are completely clueless. I mean, look at the uh, numbers today from the mortgage refis, talking about housing. Every week we get the numbers for refis, and today we hit the lowest level in 18 years. I mean, what does that tell you? Do people not understand how the U.S. economy works? It's all based on debt-based consumption. That's what happens. People use their home as an ATM. And what is the vehicle? It's the refi. You pull out cash in a refi. And when interest rates were really low, people could keep doing that. And they could keep refinancing, taking out more money, but their payments didn't go up because they kept having a lower and lower rate. Well, that party is over, right? The house as an ATM is shut down. That's why these refis are collapsing and they're going to continue to collapse. And so this has been a real driver of consumer spending because what do consumers do with the cash that they extract? They spend it. Or if they don't extract cash, they just lower their monthly payment because they refi to a lower rate and now they spend less money every month on their mortgage, well, what do they do with the savings? They go out and spend it on other stuff. That's what's been driving the economy. And also, you know, if if homeowners get in trouble, right, if they're having trouble making ends meet, well, a refi, uh, you know, could save the day. It's an important lifeline. Well, that lifeline has been severed. And this is not just an 18-year low. It's going to keep falling. Nobody is going to be able to refinance their mortgages, especially as rates go to 5.5%, 6.5%, which they clearly will do if the Federal Reserve delivers on its promised rate hikes. Certainly, we're going to be over 6%. Nobody is going to be able to refinance. And that means if a homeowner is in trouble, all he can do is sell. And, of course, the new buyer... They, they can't assume the mortgage that they have, so you've got to sell to somebody who could afford a 6% mortgage. Well, who could afford that? Not that many people, so the price has to implode. And, of course, that also traps people in their starter homes, right? Let's say you bought a starter home and you got a 3.5% mortgage, and now you're, you've outgrown it, right? Maybe you had a kid or two and you want to buy that bigger home. Well, now you have to take on a 6% mortgage. Well, you can't afford it. You can't transfer your smaller mortgage on your starter home, you can't just assign that one over or bring it over to the newer home. So more and more people are going to be trapped in their homes. Uh, they're not going to have any mobility whatsoever because the, you know they're stuck to their mortgage. They, they can only afford the mortgage they have. Even if the price of another house goes down, they can't afford to buy it because they can't afford the higher rates. And then, of course, if prices really fall, they can't even sell their starter home because they have no equity. And if they have no equity, they have no down payment for the trade-off market but this whole thing is imploding everybody is oblivious i mean just even look at what happened to uh, uh pg and e right this is one of the largest uh utilities in the world publicly traded utilities out in california that stock was down another 22 percent today this is a utility Right. This is something that people buy because they think it's a safe stock. Right. The widows and orphans. We're buying the utilities. We don't want to take a lot of risk. We're going to get a dividend. We're going to buy utility down 22 percent today, down 65 percent in the past year, a utility. And if you look at this chart, there is no bottom in sight. In fact, it's possible that this utility goes to zero. It goes bankrupt. Now, why is it going down now? Well, it's going down now because it's possible that this utility, an electrical failure at the utility, is responsible for causing the campfire in Northern California that has killed uh, you know, 30 people. I'm not really sure, or 50. I've lost uh, count. I think it's the deadliest fire in, uh, in California history. 
And in addition to the tremendous loss of light and, and the human uh, suffering here, which I, I can't even express how bad this actually is uh, for the people who live in California, but apart from the human toll and uh, the tragedy there is the financial costs. I talked about this a little bit before about just, you know, the cost of rebuilding, but also the financial costs for these companies that could be responsible if PG&E, if they are liable for starting this fire, well, then they're through. And they've already announced that even though they have insurance, that the coverage isn't enough to cover the losses and the claims that are likely to follow suit. So basically, the, the shareholders could get burned, too, uh, and that they lose the entirety of their investment because they don't have enough money. And this is an example of like a contingency liability or something that could go wrong that you're not accounting for. And this thing, I mean, this is a huge fire. You've actually got insurance, but your insurance policy isn't big enough. And now you're completely blown up. Now, maybe the state of California will try to bail them out, you know, to try to keep them in business. Or, I mean, obviously they stay in business, even if the stockholders get wiped out. It's just that we have new owners. But if they want to preserve some equity for the stockholders or something, if they want to bail them out, where's that money going to come from? Is California going to borrow it? Are they going to raise taxes? You know, and this is going to be happening, you know, not only in California, but I think all over the United States. We're going to see the results of this credit bubble as all sorts of contingency liabilities uh, all of a sudden, you know, rear their ugly head. You know, I was watching this interview today and I, I put it up on my Facebook page on USA Watchdog with Greg Hunter. And he was interviewing um, John Rubino of uh, dollarcollapse.com is his red website. He wrote a book way back, I think in 2006 or seven with Jim Turk about the coming dollar collapse, obviously about a decade or more too early. Uh, you know, basically saw a lot of the same problems that I did. Uh, he was writing his book around the same time I was writing mine. Um, but he had, did a really good interview. But a point that he talked about was the unfunded liabilities of New York City. New York City. And according to Rubino, it's $200 billion of liabilities just for New York City. I'm not talking about New York State, just the city. And about $50 billion of that was bonds, where you know, the city had actually sold bonds to investors. So that's the funded portion. But the other $150 billion had to do with an underfunded pension, right, where they don't have enough money set aside to meet the pension obligations of city workers who have already retired or who are still working but who are looking forward to retirement, and then to health care benefits. Apparently, if you work for the city of New York, even after you retire, New York City pays your health care expenses for the rest of your life. And so obviously these are all obligations of the taxpayers of New York City uh, that have not been funded but have to be paid. And how are they going to get paid? And the idea is, well, you know, New York City is probably going to go bankrupt. They did it before, right, under Gerald Ford, remember, when you know he allowed uh, New York City to go bankrupt, which was the right thing to do. But, of course, it was very unpopular with the voters of, of New York City at the time, and they were very upset at Gerald Ford. And obviously, you know, maybe that was part of the reason that he wasn't able to get elected, not even reelected. Because remember, Gerald Ford was never even elected president. He was elected vice president. Uh, actually, he wasn't elected vice president. He was appointed vice president because Spiro Agnew was elected and he resigned. And then he was uh, and then he became vice president without even being elected 
to that office, and then Nixon resigned, and he became president. So he he never actually was elected to president or vice president. But one of the reasons why he might have lost to Jimmy Carter is because he didn't bail out New York City. But that was the right thing to do. Not only did it send the right message to New York City, but it sent the right right message to the rest of the country that hey, if you get yourself into trouble, if you push the envelope too far, you're going bankrupt, and we're not going to bail you out. There is no federal lifeline or federal safety net if you're a city and you take on too much debt. You know, the opposite message that was learned supposedly from the financial crisis, where everybody thinks the, the, the one thing we did wrong was letting Lehman Brothers fail. That was the one thing we did right. We just didn't have the stomach for the consequences. And so now in this crisis, the next time somebody fails, they're going to bail them out as quickly as possible. But this time, it's not just going to be companies like Lehman Brothers that fail. It's going to be cities like New York City, you know, maybe even entire states, because so much debt was taken on during this credit bubble. Remember, I've been saying that this bubble is so much bigger than any other bubble because interest rates have been so low for so long. No states or municipalities or any of these companies that have had debt have had any incentive to reduce that debt or pay down that debt. It's been, hey, money is cheap. Let's just make hay while the sun shines. It has been shining for years, and they've been making a lot of hay. The problem is the music has stopped, or the sun has stopped shining, and now what's going to happen? Because these debts have been accumulating far too long. Had interest rates gone up a long time ago, well, then a lot of uh, municipalities or state governments would have done something sooner to address the problem. And certainly the federal government has done absolutely nothing to address the problems of its liabilities, both funded and unfunded, because it hasn't had any reason to do so because interest rates have been so low. Right, and people were saying, "Oh, you're foolish not to borrow out all this cheap money." Remember what I used to say when people were saying, "Hey, you should take advantage of all this cheap money." My response was, "Well, if heroin was free, should you take advantage of that?" Right, if they're giving away heroin, should you say, "Hey, it's free. I'm going to use it because it doesn't cost anything." Yeah, it's it's destructive to you. It's dangerous. You shouldn't use heroin even if you get it for free. Just because you get something bad for free doesn't mean you consume it. And so just because you can go into debt at a low cost, just because they're giving away money, doesn't mean you should borrow it. Doesn't mean you should fall into that trap. Because what happens eventually when interest rates go up and you're stuck with all this debt? You know, again, that's what's going to happen to the housing market. When real estate prices collapse, everybody still has all the debt. The debt doesn't collapse. The debt is still there. So your home value goes down, the the debt stays the same, and so your equity implodes. That is the problem of leverage, right? It's a two-way street. Everybody loves it when asset prices are going up, except, you know, it's a hangover when asset prices go down. In fact, that is the very reason that the Fed pursued this monetary policy. They specifically wanted to create the wealth effect of rising asset prices, even though the wealth was an illusion, even though it was a temporary high, even though they knew that eventually, right, prices would come crashing down and the high would wear off and we would have a hangover, even though the financial crisis of 2008 was specifically caused by that same, you know, medicine by that same heroin, they decided to give us an even bigger dose so that they can postpone the consequences. And the amazing thing is nobody recognizes that the consequences are here, right? We've kicked the can down the road. Now we're here. We've caught up to the can, right? I've been saying that. We can't 
kick it anymore, right? These are the chickens. They're coming home to roost now. This is the long run, right? This is the day of reckoning. Now, it's not happening today, but the process has already started. You can see it in the markets. Look at some of the other uh, bubble stocks blowing up. The pot stocks got smoked again today. A lot of these stocks down 10 to 20% in one day. Look at also the gyrations in the energy market. You know, oil prices were down $5 a, a barrel on yesterday. Oil went from 60 to 55. I mean, it was up not even a buck today. At one point, it was up more. But $5 drop in one day. Obviously, a lot of sell stops got triggered in this market. I don't think that oil is going to stay that low. But what pushed it down there temporarily, again, is not only the sell stops, but the rapidly deteriorating outlook for the economy in the United States. Whether people want to admit it or not, it's U.S. growth that is collapsing, and that's what's taken uh, the oil price down. But you know what? Look at the natural gas price. If you want to see a dichotomy in markets, natural gas prices shot up about 17% today. They're now at a nine-year high. The price of natural gas getting close to 5 bucks, and it's about triple the low it was two years ago. So, I mean, obviously, this is going to impact people in the Northeast and the Midwest this winter. They're going to be paying uh, these uh, much higher prices to, to heat their homes. And so, yes, we're getting some relief when it comes to the price of gasoline, but that relief is being removed by the higher price of natural gas. But no bubble is losing air quicker than the crypto bubble, the Bitcoin bubble. I have been talking about this for obviously some time on this podcast. More recently, I have been talking about this calm before the storm, this period of low volatility that a lot of the crypto uh, boosters have been pointing to as evidence of a bottom. Oh, there's a floor. You see, this? it's this lack of volatility. We've been trading around 6,400, 6,500. And see, we've been here for months. This is the lowest volatility we've ever seen. Obviously, we're just uh, creating a floor. And I was saying that that was just wishful thinking, that in my mind, it was far more likely that we were going to go lower. And in fact, if that was a floor, it was basically a trap door and it blew open today. So far at the low, Bitcoin was down 15% on the day. You know, it's recovering a little bit now. It's only down about 11% as I'm speaking. It's getting closer to 5,600. It got all the way down to 5,324. That is on Bitstamp. And, you know, various exchanges have different prices. So I'm looking at Bitstamp. And, of course, Bitcoin was not the only crypto. They all got clobbered. Bitcoin probably held up better than a lot of the other ones. So the market cap of the cryptocurrency is now below $190 billion, just $187, uh, looking at this coinmarketcap.com. Of course, now there's a lot more cryptos. There's 2,095 of them now, so we're getting close to 2,100 cryptos. Bitcoin represents about 53% of the total market capitalization of all the cryptocurrencies. But I think this is a new low for this particular move. And, you know, I'm browsing some of the cryptos on this uh, coin market cap, and the prices seem to be a lot higher than what they are on other exchanges. So this is probably overestimating the, the current market cap of the cryptos. 
But as I was saying, you know, markets don't make it easy to buy the bottom, right? They don't just stay at the bottom for months and just give everybody and his brother the opportunity to buy at the bottom. Normally, if there's a bottom, you're not there very long, and it doesn't look like a bottom. Normally, at the bottom, it feels really scary. It's kind of like a capitulation. Uh, and so the only people that buy the bottom are the people that are crazy enough or brave enough uh, to step up and buy, right, to catch that falling knife just as it looks like it's about to, you know, chop, you know, pierce right through your heart. We haven't had that kind of fear or capitulation yet in the crypto market. I think it is eventually coming. I think it's coming at much lower prices uh, than we've seen so far. But I always thought that we were just setting up for another big move down. And that's obviously what happened. I mean, some people are blaming it on some kind of hard fork that uh, Bitcoin Cash is going to have tomorrow or something like that. But who cares? I mean, people obviously have known about that hard fork. It wasn't like they just announced it today that they were hard forking tomorrow. So that news is not new. And so if people were going to sell on that news, they would have already done it. I don't think that has anything to do with the decline. I just think that, you know, they ran out of buyers. I mean, there have been some buyers there. Uh, The sellers have been patient and maybe the sellers became a little bit more aggressive. They wanted to sell, you know, some more Bitcoin and the buyers weren't there and the bottom dropped out or the trap door opened up and then we moved decisively lower. And I think we've broken down and now we're in another leg down in the crypto market. And if you look at the cryptos chart in terms of dollars, it looks even worse if you measure it in terms of gold because gold was up about 10 bucks today. So Bitcoin was down by an even larger percentage if you want to price it in gold uh, than it was if you price it in dollars. And, you know, again, you had all these people saying, oh, Bitcoin, see, it's it's non-correlated. And yeah, I mean, it seems that it's non-correlated to me. It, it's no matter what happens to other assets, Bitcoin is likely to go down. I mean, so that's non-correlated, but so what? If it's not going to go up, if it's basically going to either go down or it's going to crash, I mean, what good is the non-correlation, which is what I've been saying. But again, remember, initially, Bitcoin was marketed as a cryptocurrency. Now it's being marketed as a crypto asset. In fact, I even saw some you know, crypto bull on television today saying or criticizing people for still calling them cryptocurrencies. He says they're not cryptocurrencies, they're crypto assets, which shows you how ridiculous, right? We've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous when the very basis of the value of the asset is that it's a currency. But now people are saying, look, it's not a currency, it's just an asset. Well, an asset for what? If it can't be used as a currency, then exactly what do you have? I mean, and this guy was actually acknowledging that, look, people don't use it as a medium of exchange, right? People aren't using it as a currency. You just buy it as an asset to have in your portfolio. But an asset that represents what, right? I mean, because if it can't be used as a currency, then what do you have? I mean, when you buy stocks, right? The asset represents the earnings of that company, right? I invest in a company and I own part of that earnings stream. If I invest in bonds, well, I've loaned somebody money. They have to pay it back unless they default and they have to pay me interest between the time I make the loan and the time they pay me back, right? If I buy real estate, I got a house, I got an apartment. You can live in it. I can rent it out. I can collect rents, right? So that's the basis of the asset. Well, The whole thing about Bitcoin is it's supposed to be a currency, right? It's supposed to be an alternative for the dollar or the euro or something like that. But if you're saying, no, that's not what it is. It's just an asset. Well, what does it do? What's its yield? Nothing. 
right? I mean, you know, so it doesn't it doesn't have value as an asset if you say it's not a currency. So it just shows you they have to keep on justifying or coming up with new reasons to try to value something that fundamentally has no value. And of course, you know, all the people that are in there, they keep wanting to talk about, well, look at all the money that's been spent uh, on this crypto space. Look at all this investment. Yes, I know. That's what happens in bubbles. Mises called it malinvestment. All of this is malinvestment. Don't believe that just because a bunch of greedy people and foolish people poured lots of money into developing an infrastructure for Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, that those investments aren't going to go up in smoke, just like the cryptocurrencies themselves. Because ultimately, if the cryptocurrencies collapse, the infrastructure has no value. It doesn't matter. I mean, what good is it if you own a highway and nobody has any cars, right? So that is basically what's going to be happening. But it's all, again, symptomatic of the bursting of these bubbles, right? When you have the credit excesses, when you have the cheap money, it funds all kind of crazy things. And the biggest irony of all is that one of the bubbles was Bitcoin, which actually got started as the antithesis of uh, fiat currency, the central bankers. The original motivation for people who bought it was that, hey, you know, this is, you know, the fiat currencies aren't going to work. And it was because of all the bubble blowing that the early adopters got in. But, of course, for the institutions who are buying now, they couldn't care less. This, the, the, you know, the forest got lost in the trees. They, they don't even understand the original basis for, for having bought Bitcoin. I do. I just know that the original basis was not sound because Bitcoin ultimately can't serve as money. It's, it doesn't have the necessary characteristics. It has some of them, but it doesn't have all of them. And if you don't have all of them, then it's not going to work. But, you know, the people who got in towards the end of the mania, they don't know about that. They just see something going up and they bought it. Well, like all bubbles, you know, the air is coming out. All this stuff is crashing. And you've got all of these commentators, you know, all these professional investors in complete denial. And, of course, the denial goes all the way to the top. You know, the, the White House is in denial. His economic advisors, Larry Kudlow, the Federal Reserve, they keep talking about how great the economy is. I keep hearing people, you know, uh, on television, oh, we can't be headed to a recession because the numbers are so good. What do they mean? The numbers are always good right before a recession. They're never bad before a recession. They're bad in the recession. The recession starts when the numbers are good. It ends when the numbers are really bad, right? That's just like saying, well, this recession can't be over. Look how bad the numbers are. The recession can't be over. Look how high the unemployment rate is. Well, that's how recessions always end. They always end when the unemployment rate is high, right? The bottom is always when the unemployment rate is high. I mean, the, the bear market ends. Right, it's like saying, "Oh, we can't be in a bear market because the stock market is so high." Well, we're early in the bear market, right? Because bear markets start when the markets are high. Because in order to be a bear market, you got to go down, which means you have to go up. You can't go down unless you go up first. And if you're going down, you're going down from a high point. So obviously, we could be in a bear market. We can be in a recession. It's just that people don't recognize it yet, right? Officially, you, you're not in a bear market until you're down 20 percent. Now, does that mean you're not in a bear market if you're down 10% and ultimately you go down 20%? No, because if you go down 20%, then you were still in a bear market when you were down 10%. You were just in the earlier stage of the bear market because it's the same bear market. All the declines uh, count. And, you know, so now that we have Apple in a bear market, well, was it in a bear market when it was down 5%? Yes. 
Now, if it never went down 20%, if it only went down 10% and then made new highs, well, then no, then it was in a correction. But the fact that we continued to fall, what that means is the early decline was not a correction. People hoped it was a correction, but it wasn't. It turned out that it was a bear market. You don't find out that you're in a bear market until you're down the 20%. But of course, by then, it's too late to sell before the bear market. But of course, once you're officially in a bear market, what does Wall Street sell? It's too late to sell. The bear market is over, right? So they never say sell. They're, they're, they're perma bulls. It's the same thing with the economy. Right. The economy, the numbers look good. The confidence is good because everybody is looking in the rearview mirror and they're confident because the market is high. They're confident because the unemployment rate is low. But that can change very, very quickly. Right? all of a sudden people get surprised by what's happening, by the market gets clobbered. All of a sudden the wealth disappears. Now you have defaults. Now you have bankruptcies. Now you have foreclosures. All of a sudden you have layoffs and boom, you're in a recession. And this recession is going to be much worse, as I've been saying, than the last one, because it's a function of the credit bubble. This is a bigger boom. It's going to be a bigger bust. And the Federal Reserve doesn't have the ammunition this time that it had last time to postpone the pain. They're not going to be able to paper this over. Their next round of quantitative easing, their next move down to 0% interest rates is not going to revive this real estate market and the stock market. It is going to kill the dollar. That is what is going to happen. And when that happens, long-term rates are going to go up. Consumer prices are going to go up. This is massive stagflation. And, and the chickens are coming home to roost. And then we're going to have some very, very tough choices that need to be made that nobody wants to make. And as I've been saying all along, the worst part about it all is not necessarily just the economic uh, disaster and the financial disaster, but the political disaster that we're going to have. Because who is going to get the blame? Donald Trump, the Republicans in the Senate, and the the blue wave is going to be a tidal wave in 2020 of socialists coming to rescue the economy, right? And that's like somebody coming to rescue a drowning man with an anchor.